do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Seeds. It all starts with seeds. And soil, but mostly seeds. And our current seed system is structurally not able to grow. Seeds that are adaptive to local niches, weather, etc. Let alone flavor and nutrients. But it's only able to grow seeds for large, large monoculture agriculture systems. But 97% of global farmers aren't large monoculture farmers. And 70% of our global food is grown by them. So who grows seeds for them? And how are we going to innovate and adapt there? This interview takes a deep dive into the world of collaborative seed research and what about yields, nutrients and flavor. And yes, we also tackle the topics like GMO, CRISPR and your favorite heirloom tomato. Enjoy. What are the connections between healthy farming practices, healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut and healthy people? Welcome to a special series where we go deep into the relationship between regenerative agriculture practices that build soil health and the nutritional quality of the food we end up eating. We unpack the current state of science, the role of investments, businesses, nonprofits, entrepreneurs, and more. We're very happy with the support of the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment for this series. The Grantham Foundation is a private foundation with a mission to protect and conserve the natural environment. Find out more on granthamfoundation.org or in the links below. Welcome to another episode, today with Seed Breeder and co-founder of SeedLinked. Better seed decisions start with SeedLinked. 8,500 expert growers and 300,000 insights, plus 3,000 varieties from leading seed companies reviewed for performance and, wait for it, flavor. Welcome, Nicolas. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm oh, sorry, Nicolas, because today. you come from France. Um, That's right. <laughs> so Nicolas, Actually, my name is uh, yeah, no, I changed Jean, for sure. Jean-Nicolas. Jean-Nicolas. So <laughs> welcome and when, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share about a topic we don't talk about enough. I say that actually quite often on the podcast, which is a bit contradictory, but in the, in the case of seeds, I remember a conversation with, with chef Dan Barber a long time ago. I will link that below, of course. And, and of course, conversations where seeds come up, especially in this nutrient density series, but we never go deep into the world of seeds. We always sort of keep it there as, ah, yeah, something should be done about it. Um, and it's very important, but that's sort of it. So I'm very happy to to have the chance here to to unpack uh, some of the world and what people are doing about it. So first of all, I would love to ask a question we always ask is why why did you end up working on soil in this case specifically seeds? Yeah, it's such a a big question, and it it didn't come you know directly. It's kind of a a long journey. But I I grew up in central France, um, actually in a world of community with this biodynamic farm in nature and this really shaped me in terms of being connecting to nature good food and um, being passionate of outdoors and and then through my through my journey and really wanted to then focus on ag and end up doing a phd in in, in plant breeding um, i many times uh, 
being passionate by nature and being rock climbing, being fly fishing and seeing the impact of ag in our food system and looking at, and also la later on seeing like the impact of chemical. I was um, working with, with Pioneer and I have, you know, vivid memory of field after uh, slug spray and where all the insect and everything is dead and it was just like what the hell are we doing here like um well then later on i was in davis and constantly smelling california uh, chemical all day long and we need to we need to change things and and really our food systems start if <laughs> we see like if you think about it like all the food we have is and like if something we can we can do is really we need to start with seed and and our current system in the seed, I mean, 90% is highly focused on homogeneous system, high input system. And if we want to bring diversity into all our food and ag system, you need to start with seed. And, and, and so that really, really like my journey was non-linear, but realizing that more, a lot of our challenge of our ag and food system really started with a seed and, and really bringing diversity on above ground will definitely shape below ground and soil. And so it's all interacting and, and boosting the diversity to our agroecosystem. I strongly believe is one of, of, of the essential thing we need to do. And I think region ag is really boosting for that. But the thing is our whole structure system go at the total opposite direction. And like I, after my PhD, I had the opportunity and it was to work in large seed company. Yeah. I was going to ask that uh, if you ever joined the, uh, the 90% of the seed world, let's say after your, your PhD. Yeah. I, it was interesting because I came out of my PhD and I was like, okay, I really want to work in innovative organic or more. And it was, I really struggled finding job. I mean, that was in 2011. And I even starting to work as a carpenter with a friend until I received this, this, this job offer with Pioneer. And I was like, okay. Uh, and I decided to jump in full on in, in like the traditional um, large corporations, seed company as a breeder. And I learned a ton. It was just amazing. I, I, those amazing people. I was able to do a lot of things. And Pioneer is part of one of the big ones, right? It's part of Cortiva, which yeah, comes so out of Dow, I think. If I'm not exactly, yeah. yeah. So Pioneer was under DuPont at the time. Um, and I was a cattle breeder in France. Um, then Pioneer um, and well, Dow and DuPont merged to do Corteva. And now Pioneer is under the umbrella of Corteva. Um, and... Uh, just to paint a picture a bit, I mean, before we get to seed linked, or maybe it's better to go to seed linked first and then paint a picture through that paint a picture of the current industry, which isn't pretty. Uh, listeners, um, uh, buckle up. Uh, but let's go to seed linked first. And like you, you could have stayed in the easy corporate world, easy between quotes. I mean, of course, it's not always easy, but um, I think there's there's plenty of work in in the ninety percent seed companies for the next decades they, they will make stuff more efficient they will come up with with even more complicated uh, gm seeds etc like there's there's work there if you want to stay in that but you decided no i will leave and 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 then what like what what triggered that decision or triggered that step which is quite a 
a big one. If you're in a corporate, yeah, I mean, it's just it was, very easy to stay with your lease car to stay with because maybe you have a mortgage at the time. Like at some point, you're you're stuck. Yeah, it was a weird journey. I had this idea emerged like in 2012, and it was just growing, growing inside of me, and I, realizing the structure of the actual system could not work to fulfill where we needed to go, and realizing that constantly in, in that pioneers and I work for Dow and then at Corteva that locally adapted seed with small niche market, small volume with low margin will never go through the, those current systems. Those company want limited amount of crop, limited amount of product, maximize margin. The whole structure is for that for the large market, meaning the homogeneous market. And so I was at the point like to, we need to switch that. We need to do breeding not only for corn, corn as king, and everything else is called an orphan crop, but we need R&D for literally hundreds and thousands of other crops, and within those crops, we need breeding for niche market, like many more regions. We not only need to breed for um, the Salinas or Sacramento Valley and uh, Almeria or or the Midwest for corn, but for many other regions that we are not breeding. And so, but how do we get there? Like this is the biggest challenge. And I was looking at digitalization and the way we, with data science and the rays of AI. And I was like, why can't we find solution where we can remove friction, drop the cost, increase and via collaboration, like, I was looking at Airbnb and Uber is like with Airbnb, it was just so easy to just put a room and then uh, on Airbnb and then you can generate an income. You don't, you don't need to build a $50 million hotel. And why can't we do this, find similar structures that can unlock this capacity to breed um, locally adapted seed at a lower cost and economically efficient? Because of course, so the counter it, it, it would be the big companies would say, "Yeah, but you need a very fancy lab and and a lot of money and huge research budgets." And just like the counter argument of of the hotels was and partly is, um, yeah, but for a good experience, you need uh, a concierge and you need a, a huge lobby and you need uh, the fifty million, like you said, for a building and real estate and and all of that. Yeah, you, of course, you cannot just put a room or even an apartment. And, and, and have guests. And, and of course, I know all the issues with, with local legislation. I know tourists overrunning cities, et cetera. But the core idea is very interesting as a challenge to our idea of, of, of a hotel. In this case, are you saying that it is possible for uh, local seed breeders? Like how difficult is it to breed seeds? And, and of course, it's difficult to find a market, but how difficult is it to do that on a smaller scale if you're not selling to? millions of acres of corn or or the Sacramento Valley where every salad grower is is more or less located or in in some other uh, super industrialized but regions like how how is the small breeder? It's extremely hard. Yeah. It's extremely hard because if you follow the conventional system I mean it can take 8 to 10 years to develop a seed a new variety. So imagine you develop let's say we have big challenge with broccoli where we are with climate change, we have a lot of humidity and a lot of disease and okay, we're going to work for 8 to 10 years develop a new broccoli for a market that is, let's say, is maybe $30,000 and it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop this seed. So nobody does that, basically, yeah. 
So it doesn't. It's not economically feasible, and and some people are trying to, but fail because developing locally adapted seeds. We, I mean, it just takes time. And then, let's say you have this new broccoli, and it takes maybe four or five more years to to reach peak adoption in the market. So it's not only breeding it; it's just the adoption curve, because you need to find you need to find dealers, in the grower need to find this variety, need to test it and trust it. And so you have all this trusting at that an adoption curve that is very long. So at the end, like it's just purely impossible uh, to 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 do it. So you um, thought, let's so, disrupt that. Let's make it possible. Yeah. So let, let let's. I was like, I was looking at the numbers, and I was looking like, okay, so there's like 500 million grower who produce 70 percent of the food globally. That's 97 percent of the farmers that are small that are largely non-untapped by the large industry most of the time. And when we survey a lot of small growers, I realized that 80% of them are doing their own research. They are trying it because they need to know. They need to know what to plant because nobody is really helping them. So you're saying let's completely ignore the huge monoculture industrial space because actually most farmers aren't. And also most food, also because most of these farms don't grow any food, they grow feed, ethanol and all of that. And But actually the majority of the food, as we know, comes from smaller scale farmers that cannot access seeds, cannot access any of that and are doing most of their own research because they need to know and they need to be sure or as sure as possible that something works next year and the year yeah. after. And they are innovating and imagine all their insight, the knowledge they have. If you connect them together, what could be the power? If you connect... I mean, this is a huge number of people. If you include even Garner, it's close to a billion dollar, billion people that you can connect knowledge. I mean, gardeners, yeah, could, everybody that, that semi, not professionally, but takes, let's say, their garden seriously. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's a community that is so, so engaged. The garden community has a lot of knowledge also and are very, very serious. And it's the number one hobby in all the developing country. And so it was like, Okay, with digitalization, imagine if we can connect their insight. One, to develop seed at a much lower cost because trialing and testing is the highest cost of developing seed. But now if you do this together where your future customer and grower are testing with you, then imagine the vast amount of knowledge that is generating in this innovation. You connect it and then you use that to help any other grower find your innovation or find your seed. So you, one, you make, in on one hand, the development of seed cheaper and faster by, by just doing with your customer. And on the other side, you use all this knowledge from grower to help other grower find the seed. So you drop the adoption curve, you explode the trust because a farmer trusts vastly more insight from other farmer on what do well. And so, if you develop seed with other, then you we saw that that the yes adoption curve just drop and so and so that was really I mean the adoption curve thing. drops okay. because that's of course important as as farmers have limited seasons uh, as everybody does they will won't risk too much unless they trust and they know enough which means it can take a long time even after the seed is developed and tested and selected etc to to go to the highest potential market or to a significant amount of hectares or acres. So if the adoption curve can, can go faster, that's a huge, a huge win. Exactly. And that's really shrieking 
the whole breeding cycle. And, and as a farmer, you have to understand you have, you have pretty much like 40 shots in your life, right, of, of testing. So, so you can't, you know, uh, yeah, you, taking a risk when you test a new seed, like you can't deploy it into all your acre. You have to you, you do testing. But, but similarly, you can see dozen of farmer in the same condition than you and you can see their their performance and what they think about the seed you, you really de-risk so much the adoption and so really at the end seedlinked is a community of thousands of growers and really literally in the future potentially millions of growers connecting with innovator via this infrastructure seedling as a platform that allow collaborative innovation and research together and with all the features to do that, a fully integrated social media where people can talk among each other, ask questions, interact, because seed discussion is the number one discussion that farmer has. And lastly, a search engine, prescriptive engine, where you can go. And as we scale in North, we, North America, we're scaling in Europe now, thanks to the European Union, to India, Africa, and other, imagine the vast amount of knowledge that you can tap and look at non-contiguous environment and see, okay, what seed will do best for me powered by collaborative insights. So those are seedling is really a three-pillar platform um, that is really built collaboratively and, 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 and to really f- uh, fulfill innovation and, and to tackle some of the biggest challenge of our time. Um, and and how are farmers or professional growers, let's say, using seedling currently? Like, does even if I if I'm at yeah. a certain scale, like, is there like certain things you cannot do because somebody needs too many seeds, or like, what's the the current? Um, I mean, I understand the type the the, the um, super series gardener, but what about the, the professional for people that have to live of uh, their land basically as as a farmer? How would they use seedling, for example? Yeah. So, like I started mentioning in broccoli, so many grower, like professional grower and organic in, in the upper middle west, um, we had much higher humidity, so we had a lot of alternaria and black rot, and pretty much organic grower could not grow broccoli anymore, like professional grower. Uh, but it's not the main broccoli and uh, region area and um, so, so there nothing no would be developed for them basically even no. even organic seed companies wouldn't look at that even if they were interested. no and, and organic seeds is very limited amount and 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 a lot of organic uh company or like let's look at Ensasatin, vitalis or uh, the, the branch of Ensasatin who develop organic seed really in a lot of the time will use seed developing conventional and look at which of those conventional will tend to do a little bit better in organic, but it's still for most of the organic is produced in, in, in those large industrial place and not the niche market. Which means there's so, a huge potential there as well to like a lot of the yield gap discussions and, and true or not true um, also come from the fact that the seeds used in, in large, especially large organic, but organic in general haven't been bred for that soil at all. So of course they're not going to perform um, the, the best they could. So the bro- sorry, back to the broccoli. The broccoli growers <laughs> were No, suffering. but it's exactly you're right. It's exactly what you're saying. But it go back to the initial problem, and I would go back to the broccoli example, but how do you breed niche 
of seed for a niche market um, that it's a small market, it's a small volume, small margin, and 90% plus of all those companies will not do it. And when we work together in those niche market and develop seed or look for seed that are already bred, but we find the one, we see 30 to 50% increase in performance of like, because... Um, and that seed is just laying around somewhere or you're able to find it and then unlock it just like there were empty rooms in the airbnb example we keep coming back there but like as as sort of places that haven't been discovered as 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 potential state places to stay in this case seats that just aren't on the market because there has never been a marketplace there's not there's a market but there's no marketplace is that what what happens then it's it's two it's a really good question it's two way one is some are we don't know some are there have been developed not for this region, but they might be adapted. And so for me, it's this example of broccoli is what we did. Like we seedling thanks to see in few click, you were able to gather 85 grower in this, in this region, testing more than 25 different broccoli. And with very limited amount of resources in, we were able to find a couple really well adapted seed for organic. Um, and so those were already existing. But that can be the foundation of, okay, now we see those are really adapted, but what could we even do better? Let's do some crossing and start breeding together. And so that's what we are pioneering with Dr. Judy Dawson at UW Madison is not only characterize what is existing, but let's develop the new variety. And then when we do that, yeah, we really change the full paradigm. Like we do crosses. And then at F3 or the third generation where we still have so much diversity. This we need to add back for people. It. If you say F3, okay. I think people look at their, their, their laptop. Okay. Like, what is F3? <laughs> okay, what's F3? Yeah, so, you know, when you start breeding, let's say you have two parents that one, let's say one tomato has excellent flavor, another one has amazing disease and you want to combine those traits and create disease resistance uh, let's just be clear disease amazing resistance, disease yeah. Inside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 amazing disease resistance and and so we we want to combine those characteristics to develop let's say a tomato that has high flavor high disease resistance maybe early maturity for northern latitude and so we we cross those two parents we create an f1 um, so that's the first generation of cross and to where diversity explode in, in crossing is at the F2. So we replant this F1, we let them self pollinate together again and create the F2. And then we're going to have an explosion of diversity then of this population. And then we're going to take this ex- huge diversity and send it to grower by random sample. And we're going to let them select with a platform that allowed data tracking, picture, and information. And Which so you can use with AI to understand with the picture. So we're going on all kinds of rabbit holes here, but you can like f- start to follow. Yeah, okay, so you send it out to this collaborative grower, which greatly reduces the costs because you don't need a massive laboratory with I don't know how many fields and like because you don't do this in-house. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. The, the price per plot doing a collaborative model drop for 100 like 50 to 150 dollar plot of research to 25 to 4 dollar depending on the scale to 4 to 25 dollar plot sorry so, again from 150 dollar to 
all the way to four dollar plus wow. by a collaborative model. So we we drastically drop the cost of experiment experimental unit, which is a plot like when you trial and test. And so by dropping the cost to five to ten x of experimentation, what can you do? And that at the R and D level. Then, as I mentioned earlier, there's also the adoption that we're shrinking because we are not taking all this data and not uh, and, and keeping it for us and not sharing and just controlling every single piece of information. No, we we are fully transparent and share this because that of this new tomato that we developed for years with Grower. All this information is going to be the powerhouse for this product to be sold and find. And so, because then when it needs to be uh, sold, let's, let's go back to, for example, the broccoli and then what happens, like who's going to make sure we have enough consistent seeds is going to be shipped on the right moment. Like who becomes the MAB host that, that manages that. Yeah, Some are more professional than others, of course, but like, how do we, because it's not like then everybody can send, that broccoli to another one. So just to like, if we somehow agree, okay, at some point we have something that works in this region against the humidity and it's much luckily much faster because otherwise the climate has changed again already. Then, then how do I make sure, or how do you make sure the, um, yeah. the, the broccoli Great grows? Can buy so in the, yeah. yeah. In the example of broccoli, we, we were screening already commercial variety and, and just pre-commercial that were soon going to be commercial. And so there was already a breeder, seed company and for example this was Bejo Seed who is also really engaged in organic seed uh, from I believe the Netherlands uh, and uh, this broccoli was already commercialized for organic and so um, Bellstar Broccoli was one of the best um, and so in this instance there was already a supply chain and it was already available. In this example of tomato that we work with the group of Dr. Julie Dawson and we already work with independent breeder and seed producers. So like when we are developing the seed and we're going to release a new amazing tomato uh, next year, we are, we already have seed producer and then and, and dealers that say, okay, I want, this is an amazing project and I want to support it. And because when you say we company. release, it's, it's not you releasing it, right? No, in this case, actually, this product is amazing. is uh, is going to be released under OSSI's Open Seed Source Initiative, so it's going to be open source release um, variety that everybody's going to be able to to use, commercialize, and do further breeding with it. So it's going to be a total open source um, variety. But in other instances, it will not be open source. It will be an independent breeder that will be its owner. Yeah, so when I was mentioning the example of we are breeding with 50 growers in the Middle West here and with Dr. Judy Dawson at UW Medicine and two independent breeders, um, a tomato that will be much better flavor. So we're working also with Chef. And this tomato will be released under OSSI, which is Open Seed Source Initiative. It will be released under an open source status, meaning this variety will be accessible to all, will be able to use for further breeding um, as ever you wish. Um, and so that's one pathway, more like an open source pathway. And we have local seed company who are going to distribute it and multiply the seed and make a profit and being able to have a really good locally adapted tomato offered to their grower. Um, and But we have also 
independent reader who will use seedling to develop um, new cabbage or cauliflower or other that they are fully the owner of it and they're going to use grower to characterize them then they're going to find a dealer let's say maybe in the US um, high mowing organic seed or johnny seed or other who are going to carry their variety and, and sell it um, and so there are, are different pathways or we are working in an amazing project and I'm really really excited when Back in the day, I was an um, alfalfa breeder. I I started to have many side projects. Even if I was working with large seed company, I was amazed. Like within those large seed company, I mean, there's amazing people working in those large seed company, and I was amazed they let me play with weird mix system. Like, um, and so one of them, I was working with the people in at the USDA on developing alfalfa that could withstand corn. Uh, shade. So we were planting corn, silage corn, and alfalfa all the way together. Obviously, the conventional variety of alfalfa was just dying because there was lack of resources of sun, and, and so they were not at all suited for growing with corn. And then when you have the corn, then the alfalfa take over. You, it's like a cover crop, and then you go on a full-on um, silage of uh, forage um, harvests and, and production um, system. But what we did, we developed a, re- a shade tolerance alpha alpha that could withstand the pressure of corn, like a mix system, like we, where regenerative ag is going to, to to mix pieces together. And and so we bred a variety alpha alpha that allow to 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 this this coexistence, this pressure. And, and survive. And now we are using seed. We're going to use seedlings in the future to test with many grower the system, those varieties that we develop. And then we have already a dealer and seed com- company like Albert Lee Seed um, that is are super excited uh, of those varieties that are going to distribute it. And so, and this variety, the current seed industry, we are not at all interested. It's like seems to be a niche market. It doesn't seem to be a mainstream and nobody were going to commercialize this, but the impact such innovation can have in, 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 in ag and like in this case in soil and erosion and is tremendous, but that's just an example of so many innovation that the mainstream seed industry, the structure is not done to, to carry on those innovation due to the margin financial structure they are on and, and, and so forth. Um, and, and to come to that point, um, what is your financial structure? Like, how do you um, make sure it is possible or how do you keep the lights on? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's been a wild journey. Uh, so, Seedlinked as a platform to date, we our business model has been uh, software as a service. And so, for example, we have independent reader or we have uni- a lot of university or seed bank who pay annual subscription to use Seedlink to run collaborative trialing and breeding. Um, and so that's the phase one. Um, we are innovating into multi-seller marketplace where 
then those products can be all seen on Seedlinks with all the data and we will take a small fee of the transaction. Um, and really, as a long-term goal, having Seedlinks um, almost as a decentralized seed company where we provide services to all those innovators where we can help from A to really to, to the beginning to the end where you can start developing your product, leveraging this giant network that we are carrying. We have close to 10,000 growers, but in the future, if we have hundreds of thousands of people, you can leverage this. And then all this data allow to power the commercialization and then and so forth. So really as a more decentralized seed company where revenue will come from different channels, um, from multi, yeah, marketplace to SaaS subscription, to data as a service, to marketing. Um, and, and how does the traditional or, or the current seed, seed world see these kind of things? Do they still completely, like what, what's their view on, on regenerative in general? Although I saw a few um, uh, chemical companies claiming their chemicals were absolutely essential part of Regenag. Um, but what do you see in the, the conventional seed world? Yeah, what, what I see is that even some conventional who started to play a little bit with organic, they're pulling back because the market is in, in tough situation and, and they're, again, their structure is such that um, when we keep talking to them, they, they, they really struggle and, and, and they, how they cannot reach those more micro market and develop product. And so they're going to leverage their mainstream breeding for those key region and, and then take advantage. Oh, maybe let's try to see if this corn or this tomato can fit a regenerative model, but it's never going to be an optimization. Um, but I think that we start to see a lot of emerging seed company, a emer lot of emerging initiative that are absolutely amazing. And it, yeah, do you feel like the tide is, is, no, not changing or turning, but the, the, what do you see on the emerging side of, of the systems change picture? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, we see many small seed companies that are coming and are, their market share is growing and growing and, and people want to find more ethical product and ethical partner to work with. And so um, I believe that we need to give the capacity, which is the mission of Seeding how to make those small seed company profitable because that is really one of the biggest challenges, like how to make them profitable. And until we find an economic model, it's, it's going to be extremely hard. And it's why like I'm fascinating to see where Row 7 is going with um, Dan Barber and Michael Mazarek, who uh, was the 
the connection with Whole Food and Row 7 and how they are looking at different pathway to not only sell a seed, but it's really selling a story, a novel beat or badger flame is not just a beat. It's just a full story that you can find all the way to the shelf. And the consumer is not talking about beats. He's talking about badger flame and, and how this added value can trickle down all the way to the seed company and the breeder creating more value and creating more value. I mean, be more um, economically sounds and so on. So is that um, like really underlying or not, not the underlying goal, but sort of a big lever to pull is to make these new emergent or older emergent, older seed companies that are doing things fundamentally different and looking at nutrition and breeding for flavor to make them more economically viable because that would sort of um, keep them alive and thus doing more research and thus producing more seeds and uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's my, that's my belief. That is really where the friction is like, um, to find, to innovate in, in business law and structure to really make them thrive. Because, um, if not, I, I don't see how we can move forwards. Um, and like the whole cover crop, for example, uh, like all the traditional seed company, and I was part of them, uh, working at Dow and Alforex was owned by Dow. We were doing a lot of breeding of, of crop for cover crop early on, but the margin in EBITDA was, it was profitable, but it was not the 10% EBITDA that investor wanted. So all those programs were kind of shut down because producing and breeding cover crop is not profitable. And so, um, now we have initiative with Cornell and other university to, to create a national breeding network and leveraging seedlings and breeding. And again, it's just, we are doing this because the traditional seed industry is not doing it because it's not economically sound. And so how to find different way to make this efficient and profitable and, and um, yeah, and, and resilient over time. And, and you're mentioning, I mean, us now and, and, expanding into Europe? Like what's your geography uh, plan or geography work, let's say, and, and footprint looks like now and, and how um, is that changing over the next, over next months, over the next year? We're talking at the end of, of 2023, uh, probably this comes out early 2024. So just to put a, a stamp in it, what, what are your geography plans? Yeah, we, I mean, like I said, this platform has been a collaborative effort and thanks to amazing People like um, Monica Mesmer at Fibble, which is a European Organic Research Institute based near um, in, in Switzerland. We got a large um, grants. Um, it's called Life Seeding Project to really boost organic uh, seed development. And thanks to this uh, four years uh, grant, we are developing seedlings in Europe. And so it's just been translated in eight language and um, it's available now in 22 countries. Um, and then we're starting to build collaboration to work in organic cotton in India and Africa. Um, organic cotton is again, is the same seed is one of the main issue of organic cotton on the textile. So, um, there's like a consortium called Oka, the, with a consortium of textile industry like Patagonia and other, um, to really boost, um, the breeding of, of seeds that are non-GMO and, and so we're using seedlings to boost the development of organic seed. 
Um, and then South America, we start to have some partner in Argentina and Chile. Um, and it, it's very exciting to see a lot of those initiatives um, and that all need similar capacity. And, and so um, it's an exciting and, and scary journey um, <laughs> as we really the financial is still a struggle. Um, we also paving the way in different model of, of doing breeding that some people struggle believing and struggle see that it's possible to use what's their main, model. What's their main doubt? Well, we are shifting from a highly control where I'm a breeder or a seed company and I control everything I'm doing. I'm assessing my plot, my new variety. And um, so it's, it's uh, highly controlled, but it's very expensive. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to a model where the, you have to trust a grower. And, and but the grower... I realize is the most um, have the most amazing knowledge. It's so untapped, and they are much smarter than me as a breeder. And their knowledge is incredible, but it's required to let go, and 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 to work together instead of just controlling everything and and work in a more noisy kind of uh, environment because you suddenly work in many different conditions that you cannot control. But it's, it's a power, actually, at the end, um, because we allow to crowdsource data in a much more diverse set of systems that allow to develop more adapted variety at the end. And what's the role of technology here? I mean, you mentioned AI. Um, that could also just be a buzzword as we're in 2023. Um, probably you didn't mention it in, in 2012. But like what beyond, of course, using the power of the internet to connect all of this, but what, what other layers or what other um, things am I putting my investor hat on could be possible now because we have a different type of technology we didn't have five or 10 or even two years ago, like, or maybe in two years, X, Y, Z is possible that um, we, we cannot even imagine now. What, what, what things do you see on the horizon or are you already using a technology that really excites you? Yeah, I mean, the in, in the seed, the, in, in like kind of the ag tags, there's a lot of excitement, I would say, in the traditional side of the seed industry in terms of like using gene editing and more and more drone and imagery and high capital type of technology. But again, going back to a more decentralized, hyper-local, diverse system, I believe will be the future right now is this technology um, are not economically sound to to use. And so for more decentralized side, I think AI and figuring out using those vast amount of data crowdsourced from grower to build model to, let's say, you in southern Italy find the best carrots according to who you are, all the criteria, I think... That is really an area that I'm so excited to, to, to put more resources in it. And this is really area that we want to explode. And as we grow and we potentially do a, a larger, um, round, um, in the next 12 to 15 months to, to work on. And we are building the foundation right now of a seedling to be fully interpretable to being able to bring soil and climate data and, and all those passive data that we can 
combined with crowdsource information from Grower and fit this to model to look at by a region. And, and, and also we have like question, like we have state like California or Colorado and other who are asking us, okay, we have climate model for 2050. Can you use seedling to help us figure out what are going to be the crop and the variety for those climate models? Because we need to make decision now to develop the food system of the future. And that, I think, again, different AI model and order to allow to combine with very large crowdsourcing trial that we're doing with passive data and model to be able to look at, okay, what crop, like cowpea or okra or the southern crop and what genetics and, and so forth will be able to, to fulfill this need. Um, and, and you mentioned raising... Do you look at a different model of of investments and finance and, and also structuring the company? Because um, would it be, be a bit odd if you're all about collaboration and then have a very, let's say, hierarchy or very or publicly traded company? Like, what what are your thoughts on um, on on the company itself and the structure um, in terms of? collaboration in terms of structuring, in terms of raising money, uh, in terms of, of organizing, let's say, uh, not, not only the research in a different way, but also the company? Yeah, I, that, as an entrepreneur and wanting to change system, is it's a wild journey, you know, you want to change scientific system, you want to change structure and business model, you want to change yeah, governance. Your battles. You cannot do everything at the same time, of course. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's wild and and really earlier and I was like I was fascinating about fascinating by more platform co-op type, where really user could be partly owner as well as co-founder. You have multi-type of co-op and um, a lot of advice was like create a, a, a kind of a uh, startup corporation to move fast and then switch later on. Um, and so we cre- started to create. We have we are a benefit corporation, um, and so triple bottom line social enterprise to date um, and we are looking at really how to bring more stakeholder within the company and that can go through more crowdfunding type um, I'm really excited especially we also create empowerment and engagement um, into really we are building a community of innovator and so having them engage into it uh, will also boost uh, engagement and so we are really looking at a mixed model of potential foundation, angel, as well as crowdfunding uh, investment. Um, also, the, the trust is interesting, um, of course. Yeah, investors want want control, but they're stepping into a potentially more messy, noisy. Sorry, you used the word noisy, noisy model where where not all the power is is there. And like I remember having. The founders of Stuart Economy and Stuart Ownership, uh, not the founders of that, but one of the main pushers, Armin, like asking the question, Armin Storinago, who owns, at the end of the day, owns the steering wheel of the company? Is it the investor or is it the company or is it the governance structure? And, and that's yeah, big questions that we rarely, because we have 10,000 other things on our plate, um, rarely question because, and, but then at the end of the day, what happens if Seedlink explodes, like super successful in two, three years? And one of the large ones puts 
an insane amount of money on the table to to neutralize it or to buy it and, and maybe run it in for sure a different way. Like, how do you make sure that doesn't happen? Because you are playing in a world where, I mean, maybe a lot of seed companies aren't so commercially successful, but a few are very commercially successful and they might at some point um, see the potential there or just want to shut it down. So how do you make sure you can never be then forced by your investors and your shareholders to sell, even though you really don't want to? Yeah, and it's a very good question. I, this, it's not really yeah. a question. I'm going to get emails about this. Sorry, this was a, a, a comment disguised in a question or the other way around. Anyway, but yeah, I want your thoughts on or, it. Yeah. <laughs> or thought, yeah, you're right. Uh, it, the thing is like seedlinked core is a trust. And it's this community that are working together to build you know, to bring new seed and, and, and trusting the information and, and trusting this collaboration. And so if you break this trust, you break seedlings. I mean, really. And so, yeah, but I think that's um, what I thought at Etsy and some other companies as well. Like a lot that went public and Patreon had a bit of that as well. Like how, um, and, and I think many cases it comes from pressure from investors that have a impact quote unquote VC fund that needs to exit after, six, seven years, if you're lucky, maybe less. And then suddenly there's pressure and valuations need to go up and, and all of that. Um, so short advice, stay out of that because then it's not going to, because seeds are way longer than the seven years. And so your, your, your business cycle is going to be super long and, and thus you need a structure that, and a financial structure that makes sense for that as well. And, and can, um, not, not saying you shouldn't raise money, you should all do everything on a shoestring budget, but it, it's very, very important to pick the right type of money. No, it is. And it, it's been a big challenge for us as, like you say, take time. And we are your, your five. And we are opening with very low burn rate and low money. And that brings so much pressure on everybody working in it. And many of the co-founders <laughs> just burn out. Like it's just intense. Like you're just changing the system and how to keep going and so really our strategy you know sh kind of short medium term we were lucky to there's a huge need the need is just enormous and so we are lucky to have so many institutions that are willing to step in and just revenue is right now our strategy even yeah, if it's uh, low revenue but that's but such a nice quote. Revenue is our strategy. That should, many, <laughs> many companies should should have that tagline, and uh, not like next round, next round. Because yeah, it's it's brutal fundraising at the moment. But revenue as a strategy, I, I very much like. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's like a ultra marathon right now. It's just like it's the longest we stay alive, and we have and we slowly increase our revenue. We also are increasing insight we are close to half a million insight now we also are increasing our grower and network and we are increasing our trust uh, by having more and more trusted partner and all that kind of build a foundation to be able to scale further and further in the future and so right now we have contract for m multiple years and okay our burn rate is very low but we are we're sustainable financially with revenue. And so we're not starving for investments and we want to take our time 
to think where we are heading and and so um and yeah i i don't <laughs> have all the answer and i think we're gonna fail again and reiterate and try again um but we have a good product we have a good platform that is working we have amazing projects that come together and that bring amazing variety and it's working and and so um it's moving yeah that's kind of where we are and this whole conversation that seems i'm saying relatively fresh but at the same time it isn't because we've talked about it forever and you actually have flavor in your in your tagline like nutrient quality or nutrient uh, nutritional density in product um we mentioned seeds every now and then we have a, actually a long interview with air investors and now that i think about it uh, a grower in northern north of the netherlands that is now selling seeds because he couldn't get his amazing tasting carrots uh, sold to the supermarket uh, because they wanted cheaper organic from somewhere else and and he, so he turned into the seed business where quality is rewarded but do you see that nutrient density as a as a discussion point is that synonymously in, in your case with flavor or is it a separate discussion and, and how do you like on on your social platform with the growers and and the breeders is that a is that a thing or not yet yeah i mean flavor is a thing that i mean and, and i like you, you, yeah You're from and, and i like you yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and, and Flavor has been, we have featured two crowds with flavor, like we have like Stone Barn Center and Dan Barber team who primarily use seedlings a lot to, crowd, to, to, to take flavor of all those different varieties they are trialing or Lane Selman with the Culin Culinary Breeding Network or Julie Dawson at the Seed to Kitchen Collaborative and many other. And in um, Italy with Samiri Rally and many other places. And, and so flavor is now at parity with yield in this space we are. I mean, performance and flavor are hand-to-hand. -hand. And then now really where I'm trying to find partner, and this I, I just shout out to here to everybody listening, and I'm starting to build collaboration, but let's look at, okay, flavor and crowdsource information. What can be a predictor to nutrient density? And so... Can we crowdsource information from grower or from consumer at a fraction of the cost that a wet chemistry lab analysis of nutrient density information or analysis could give us? But can we do a model that we can crowdsource those information and either a marker or a signal that we can do? And um, starting to discuss with different universities like Uh, UC Davis uh, uh, with Barbara Blanco, who is leading some of those initiatives um, and, and other of like, could we um, look at nutrient density? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's kind of a, a next uh, journey. Um, and I'm really hoping that soon we're gonna we're gonna dive into this. Um, and we are look, already looking at like, like Lane Selman and the Dry Farming Network in Oregon, looking at tomato grown under more dryland, low input versus irrigated and higher input and what the impact on flavor. But I'm convinced so many fly flavor markers are also associated with nutrient density. And so, um, but we haven't done the research yet. So that's very interesting. That. 
Because do you see, I mean, people are, that's already a huge point, actually, that flavor and performance are, are at parity in, in your group of growers and that people are, are asking for that. Um, that wasn't always the case, I'm imagining. It was not at all. Yeah. And uh, what has changed? And the, How come? Well, I think this, you know, was this whole movement working with Chef and, and everything you are doing and all those people are doing and um, like people I think are realizing more and more that yeah but we're still yeah, a tiny bubble like I, I'm, I'm thank you for the compliment but at the same time it's like really small and if you see what crap most people throw in their their supermarket chart like I'm I always hope that this now it's different and like we're on a different wave and I think we are in terms of soil etc flavor to a certain extent but you say like that that's there's some, is it of the last few years that it has been shifting? Because also 10 years ago, we talked about ag should be different, organic seed should be different. Like this, this is not a new, completely new discussion. Yeah, no, it, it's a great point. I mean, one signal, is, I haven't talked yet about it, like how seedling is starting to get used to, is, is used, is education. And so we have organization like Edible Schoolyard or... Um, led by Alice Walter and we work a lot of with CSAR Exchange and so we have this literally thousands of school who want to leverage this diversity and tasting and growing and looking at diversity of colored carrots and include this in curriculum and seeing those this drive from our the educational system, I think it's also a signal that there's really this desire of um, change and awareness. And so this is an angle that I, yeah, Sidling is starting to get used with students at school to, to assess diversity. And, and I'm super excited in terms of like really bringing this into the mainstream and education. Um, and now tackling one had on, like, I think because in the world of, and, and not to pick on them, but slow food and, and others, and especially the early, some early pieces of the movement, it, we didn't talk a lot about performance. Like we, we just said, we have to go not back to, but we have to innovate. And we, and somehow always the discussion became, especially on big stages, like, okay, but how we're going to feed the world you mentioned, but we didn't really dive into it before. Like there's so much untapped potential there. Like this is not um, like yield performance and flavor and, and potential nutrient density are not, like, you can get one of the two. Like it's not that they are, they could be, they could travel together. Let's say that's what we have to focus on because otherwise we easily get put in the corner with, oh yeah, but that's great for a few people on the farmer's market that can afford, but and the yield is so much lower. We're all going to starve if we go in that direction. Oh, this is an elite thing, which is a very nice framing and narrative, but very wrong. But I just want to double click on that with you. Like the yield and performance traveling together now or being equally important to growers, just again on the performance piece and the yield piece or the flavor and performance, sorry, like again on the performance and yield, um, this means we can still feed the world right I'm, I'm just, what, what is your answer when somebody throws that at you? Yeah, this is all nice for, for a few hobby gardeners that don't have to live of it. Um, what, what about feeding the world? Again, long <laughs> yeah. comment in a question, this guy's don't eat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a constant rhetoric in big, large seed companies. Like we are feeding the world and we need to do that. But like, again, if you look at back the number seven 
This is FAO data, guys, like Latin and girls listening. This is not somebody that made it up. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's 97% of farmers. And it's. Um, and so those are a very interesting number to look at. You can. And when you look at all those niche markets, I mean, it's this long tail of microenvironment niche and stuff. And we can boost in all the specialty crop market, like boosting yield of 30% of performance when you work locally is, is achievable. And, and, and that's huge. Like, I mean, when you work in, when I was working as pioneer order and you look at corn and when the next variety uh, of a one and a half yield uh, increase, it was huge. And actually one now... One and a half percent, sorry. Yeah, yeah one and a half percent wow. more. And you're talking 30 more. on average. Which means like could be more because you know, like you have billion of dollar invested every year in, in <laughs> you get one and a half percent, yeah. And but you have zero or very little in all the specialty crop, and so the potential. I mean, one is on the specialty crop, two is on different market, a different region, like, um, and so you have all those aspects that are not yet really on the tap like and so you can you can do so much already like you know I, this, this amazing uh, project the utopian seed project led by christmas he has amazing uh, piece on the guardian on around seed utopian seed i put a lot of this in the show notes below uh, people in description if yeah, you want christmas to. Um, and doing a lot of breedings like kind of initiative like in uh, we work on collards and I love some of his quote and what he's saying about um, like even okra, which is, I would say, an orphan crop considering in, in the conventional seed industry, like not many people know okra. And there's really one variety used most in most of places. And in seed bank, we have thousands and thousands of variety. But now we have just one variety used. Imagine so, the potential. So potential is huge. And it's, this is a project we're doing with Seed Server Exchange. is the largest non-governable seed bank in North America. who have more than 30,000 accession. And we are using 700 growers to characterize with seedlings, the whole seed bank. And we are laying the foundation to build upon, like by characterizing this enormous germplasm we are giving tool for, I love how Christmas uh, talked about those innovator, like the seed sci-fi or science fiction of those innovator who gonna build the next okra colors. Kind of, you know, we talk a lot about heirloom, right? Heirloom seed, but let's build the heirloom of the future upon the heirloom of the past. If we don't know well the heirloom of the past, we cannot really um, build the heirloom of the future, and and so yeah, there. Sorry, it was a little, little tangent about um, feeding the world, but we have so much potential and capacity, and I'm, I'm highly optimistic. Together, um, there's so much we can do, and 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 then you see people going, getting very excited about the latest genetical modification technology, CRISPR and, and others. 
my normal answer to go is like, we don't need that. Look at the variety we have and we have untapped. Why would we play God to a certain extent with things that we just don't really know the effects and time and time again, research come after five, six, 10 years later, like we missed something like, guess what? Because we didn't understand the system. Um, so, but that's my, like my easy answer is like, we don't really need it because look at all the natural varieties or all the varieties that are stored in seed banks in rice and other places that why would we bother? Um, especially as it's very expensive and very risky. Um, but then of course everybody says, yeah, but it's safe and it's research, etc. What is your normal response to that for people say, yeah, but we have this other technology and not a website, not a platform, not a SaaS, not AI like Seedlake, but we actually can change things. And now it's a perfectly safe um, way of doing that. What do you normally tell people when somebody at a dinner party, something says, says something like that? Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's a vast topics, but let's look at traditional GMO. How traditional GMO was used is used for very large market homogenous because to release a variety with a GMO, I think from what DAO or, or, or Corteva, it was more than $200 million to release a variety or <laughs> trade. you could do with 200 million. Anyway, that's a different, yeah. Yeah, and, but also this technology, if you want to release a variety that has a market cap of $30,000, this technology are totally non-suited. I mean, nobody's going to play around and put million dollars for a market that is so small, right? And I think gene editing in CRISPR has definitely way lower cost compared to the older technology. Um, and But still, it, it's very targeted um, gene and traits. Let, let's say, okay, we, we have this specific disease and we can integrate this specific gene and traits to this specific crop with, let's say, CRISPR. But still, the overall broad adaptation or this adaptation of the seed is not going to be changed by CRISPR. Like you need to do the conventional or the, the traditional work of adaptation for this micro environment or this complex system. And that gene editing is not going to do that. Um, it's going to be working in a single um, fix. Let's say, okay, let's bring this disease but. Um, it's not going to do the broad adaptation. And, and the costs, is, again, we go back to kind of the limitation, like to have tech, who are going to deploy this technology to, to micro market and niche market and orphan crop. And I think it's a really, uh, that's going to be my go-to answer. Like, don't bother. <laughs> like it's not going to, it's not <laughs> useful for broad adaptation, which is what we need. And, um, and I, I warned you before we started recording that this could be a, a long one in a sense. And, and we didn't even get to some of the questions we like to ask uh, because we don't talk about seeds enough on this podcast, which we have to change um, because there's so much to, to explore and, and to do that. But let's get to some questions. Uh, your listeners, well, you know, we like to ask some of these questions. Um, and so hearing all of this, what should smart investors or people listening that want to make um, put their money to work. Of course, this is not investment advice, but what would you, if we do this in a theater, I always like to say, we, let's say we do it in a theater, we do this live in, in the US or in Europe uh, or, or in India. And 
the room is full of, of people that, that want to use their, their financial knowledge, but also their financial wealth um, or the wealth they maybe um, manage for other people. What would be your main message to, to give? I think there's a message of hope here. There's a message of potential. But if there's one little seed <laughs> you want to plant in there, yeah. so many so many jokes we didn't make yet, but there's one little seed you want to plant in their, <laughs> in their brain. What would that be if they walk out and one thing they should really remember or should start developing, let's say, in them? I, I see too much investment in technology that are really made for homogeneous large broad scale system in ag tech even if they want like i would really 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 push to challenge that and shift this totally around look at technology solution that are scalable to complex small diverse local system like okay i'm investing in this auto automation equipment can it scale yeah. can it be flexible in ultra complex system highly diverse well <laughs> i have personally some doubt but <laughs> that's really where i would challenge an investor and in your portfolio decision to look at um those innovation and because that's um, what the future looks like yeah I believe so. <laughs> Let, I mean, let's say if to. let's say if the future looks like that, you better prepare at least part of your portfolio for that, uh, because exactly. if if uh, Nicola turns out to be right, then uh, you don't want um, to have invested in robotica or, or other technology that can only be used on on large scale monoculture um, fields. Even though they should also change, but they might look different. Yeah. And so what would you do if we flip the question? You'd be in charge of, of a large investment portfolio tomorrow morning, uh, let's say a billion dollars. What would you focus on? I'm not looking for dollar amounts exactly, but I'm looking what would you focus on when you had those kind of, if you had those kind of resources? Yeah, I, I would not chase the unicorn. I would look for micro initiatives that are doing just amazing change locally and really boost those innovation that I feel a lot of the time is bottom up. It's like farmers are the greatest innovator and there's so many initiatives coming out of the farm. And um, so I would look at more micro initiative. I will um, also put money into regenerative farm and like creating web of more farms that are really an example of what it need to look like in the future. Um, I will also look at, like I mentioned, uh, this alfalfa, for example, uh, tolerant to shade and that can really change this cropping system of corn in a much more resilient way. Like a few of um, these that are investing. still laying on a, like catching dust somewhere on, on the development arm of, of somewhere. And like, this could be a game changer for anybody growing corn and alfalfa yeah. yeah and game changer for soil for Climate. erosion for water and so and those initi initiative need this investment and and i think now we start to see like we're talking to organic valley who is a very large um, organic co-op that are becoming very interesting to this type of model but i'm convinced there are thousands of those type of micro innovations that could be really exponentially grow with some investment. Um, 
and especially breeding uh, needs, it can take seven, eight years plus. And so I, yeah, sometimes I want to just to dream about what about if I have a pool of capital to invest in so many micro breeding projects and have a pay forward mechanism where when those variety come to market, then we can pay back to this fund and have kind of this fund that allow to create a system where we can invest in the future with all those micro investors developing the seed of the future. And obviously it's a long term, it's it, it will not be a three to four, five years investment and ten X right away. But um Yeah, but the potential yeah, is there. Time. I think that like especially if the path of commercialization through things like Seedlink and maybe others in the future. Like if you know you can reach the market, then it becomes an investment decision and, and then we can discuss on the return and what is fair and extractive and not and, and all of that. But then it becomes, okay, I'm investing now X and I know if we're successful down the line, we'll reach X amount of farmers relatively quote unquote easily. Of course, never easy, but at least there's a market there of people we can, we can test in public a collaborative people will start following and once it hits potentially the market there will be people there ready to buy and will be distributors and dealers ready to to supply that change is completely different that changes the the game completely so i'm imagining people will start doing that as you become more successful because it just makes sense to start putting some money in these these research costs that are significantly lower if you do it collaboratively but still you have to fund it for five to seven years that doesn't get faster unless we invent some super good predictive technology, which maybe shorten that even a bit, which would be great. Um, and then in the seed world and the open source seed world and the collaborative seed world, where do you think differently? This question comes obviously from John Kempf that always asks, what do you believe to be true about agriculture that others don't? I like to ask it, what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture, in this case seeds, that others don't? Like where do you think contrarian? Yeah, I I believe we can breed <laughs> locally adapted uh, variety in economic uh, model, and that's really where my colleague in conventional seed system came challenging me about. Well, it's never going to be possible to carry that many inventory and product, and it's never going to be feasible. Uh, possible and. Uh, but I now with I think five years of, of research and data I've shown that it is possible in the project we've we've done to decrease five to ten X the price of development. And so I I yeah, I believe we can develop uh, the seeds that gonna really shape our food system in the future in a local way. Um and so, and especially like you mentioned, innovating in business model and partnering with distributor to all the way to the consumer to really capture this full story and value. Um, and we have to do that. Um, and then as a final question, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing overnight, what would that be? Yeah, I, I really love this question in your podcast and something I, I I love the book Ishmael from Daniel Quinn. Keep I don't know if you've 
really no, I haven't talk read about it. mother culture, kind of challenge mother culture or culture of voice behind our head are constantly there. I would change the value of our culture to put way more value into agriculture and farming as much as we put into medicine and other um, and to really, and I think it's changing, but I, I think that would be a big one because I think it would shift a lot of also um, business model and other things. But and second would be really shifting how we allocate um, taxpayer money and subsidies and really shift drastically from large conventional ag um, like corn and bean to really micro initiative and organic and regenerative and really to boost them because they not only bring all those value um, of high quality food, but also there's a steward of the land, the environment and yeah, why not even pushing to have a, a UBI for or university, a universal basic income for. I gave you <laughs> one those. magic wand and this always happens like an Aladdin. Then you do go, go for three. I think the first one, leads to the others i think that the uh, yeah. shift in consciousness then we'll figure out that actually all the other things make i mean the subsidies currently don't make any sense the way we tax work and and uh, share the benefits of that and rent seeking don't make any sense and ubi will probably or some kind of form of ubi will come into play but i really like the answer of of uh, the culture shift because this is a culture shift that is incredibly difficult but incredibly um necessary and um we're potentially at the cusp of that which is very exciting times to to be alive and i want to thank you so much for um coming here and sharing a few still we only scratch the surface i say that in many interviews but at least learned a lot on, on the potential of seed um and we might have to unpack somewhere in the future uh, more and more on on the seed side of things so thank you so much nicola for coming here um taking uh, away some hours of your valuable time and of course, good luck with what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. And we'll definitely keep following that. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And if you're listening and working in many different seed project or funding project, uh, please reach out to us and we'd love to, to collaborate and, and further develop yeah, the seed of the future together. Thank you so much, Grant, for having me. Yeah, I'll put all the links obviously below, but it's seedlinked.com. You will find it online. It's impossible to miss. And... Uh, Thank you so much for, for coming here for the pioneering work. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.